This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Housing Matters, the Vancouver Real Estate Show. I'm your host, Stuart McNish, coming to you from the studios at Oh Boy Productions right here in Vancouver. Today in studio, we have three guests with varying perspectives on accessible housing. Now, accessible housing is not a sexy topic because most people think, yeah, 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 why should I care? It's not my issue. Or so they think. In fact, you may not know this, but if you live long enough, you will start to care about accessible housing. Because people for whom access is important now, they already have that issue, they know that you are only temporarily able-bodied. They call you a tab. Did you know that one in seven people in Canada right now identify as having a disability? But that number's off base because most don't identify even though they have a painful Achilles heel that makes them hobble along or a wonky knee or a bad hip and they struggle to get around. Well, those things can and usually do get worse. And by 2030, the number of us that will actually say out loud that we have a disability will rise to one in five. Now, just before we get to this fascinating topic, I want to give a big shout-out to our sponsor. This episode comes to you thanks to the support of Denby by Sandhill. Located in Langley's historic Murrayville neighborhood, Denby is a collection of just 64 premier semi-detached townhouse residents. Featuring homes of up to 1,100 square feet, patios that let you expand your living outside, modern kitchens, ample parking and storage for a walkable community that lets you live, shop, and play in your neighborhood. Check out denbyliving.com. Joining me now is Stan Lionhorse, the Executive Director of Safer Homes Society. He's an accessibility expert who helps developers and builders to incorporate features into a home or a suite that make the addition of handrails, elevators, shower seats, and accessible toilets easy and graceful. He says a lot of people don't realize it costs a fortune to do remedial upgrades when for just a few dollars more while you're building and a little innovative thinking you can plan for your future accessibility needs. Stan, welcome. Thank you. Clearly uh, accessible housing is an issue that uh, takes up a lot of your time and your interest and not just because you're in a chair but because that's what you do. I think the average person who would be like me, I'm walking around on two feet, go, why should I care? Why, why would this be an important issue? We've got other things that we've got to worry about, especially in a, in a market where there's a housing crisis. Why should we care about accessible housing? There's a few reasons. Uh, one of them, of course, we have the baby boomer thing happening. So we have something called silver tsunami, which is a lot of people aging with multiple disabilities that basically don't self-identify as having a disability. So we may call you tabs, right? Tabs? 
temporarily able-bodied, <laughs> right? And so you may break a leg, and, and all of a sudden you have a disability. And now you come into the, the realization that stairs are a big hassle. Um, other issues around access are a big hassle. So from our point of view, building for lifespan is a much smarter way of building, and I would say a much more sustainable way of building economically and also to maintain neighborhoods. So you buy a house, you never have to move again. You start to experience some type of disability, um, and you can just modify your house. Mm -hmm. So I talk a lot about safer standards, uh, safer home standards, which uh, centers around adaptability. So we build in such a way that the house looks the same as everybody else's house, but has a number of built-in features that allow you to adapt the house as you need. Such as? Such as um, grab bars, right? Most people don't want to buy a house that looks or is labeled accessible because it has a negative connotation to it. When you talk to people who are older, the last thing they want to do is buy a house that says accessible. Why? Because, because it, it tells them that they're old? tells them that they're older or they have a disability. And what, they don't want to hear that either? They don't want to be labeled. So hmm. we're looking, okay, let's just develop some type of housing that is adaptable, right? So there are features, for instance, no thresholds for the entry doors. So you no longer have that trip hazard when you come in to the front or the back entry. So you, in other words, you're making sure that the, 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 the base of the door is flush with the floor. That's right. Unlike... It coming into my office where you got to go up and over. And right. So that's one, and that's why we call it Safer Home Standards. It's because it's related to safety. People have accidents in houses, and there are stats to back it up that um, a lot of falls, trips occur, especially with older adults, where they break a hip and you end up with a, a big bill for the, the uh, health system. And really all it was was a two-inch lip somewhere that could have been avoided right. if it had been thought of at the beginning. So I've heard that it's not just the fall in the hip, but because when you get to that point where you don't have that sudden uh, burst strength in the hip flexors and the knee flexor to, to right your balance, well, you don't have upper body strength either. You're going to go down. And what we're starting to recognize is not just the hip that's taking the impact, but so is your head. And so elderly people are now suffering uh, concussions or head injuries right. that are associated with that. So it is a big concern. Yeah, and there's more to it. I mean, you can talk about building a two, three-story residence. And if you build it in such a way that you can provide safety gates at the top of the stairs, when possibly older adults get uh, onset dementia or Alzheimer's, where you're worried about them falling down the stairs, you can actually build into the behind the scene, into the structure, um, features that you can actually put gates on that they can't push over. So you just think of a child safety gate on the top of a stairs. This would be a little more robust right. and you can bolt it into the wall. So, but, there, the, but the infrastructure has to be there to bolt in too. It does. Yeah. Or you have to start over, rip it open, and spend a lot of money. Which costs a lot of money. It costs yes. a lot of money. Yeah. So the, the whole idea is to build something in such a way that the economic uh, charge, upcharge to modify is relatively inexpensive. And we make the point that if you build a safer uh, home and it is, say, a 1,000-square-foot condo, your upcharge would be between $500 and $1,000. And um, from our evidence that we've been looking at lately, you can command a higher sell price for the product because it has better durability and sustainability 
so people no longer have to move. Mm-hmm. Uh, recently, a friend of mine, uh, his is uh, one of his parents fell and broke her shoulder, and now they're in big trouble because they re- their standard 1970s two-story house with cathedral entry with stairs, and they can't navigate the stairs. So we could, by properly building things, for instance, in, uh, and people say, well, we can't do that because we don't have enough room. But if you stack your closets on top of each other, if you do it right, you have, in effect, an elevator shaft ready. And then when you want to build an elevator, you just pull out the floor, which is prepped for it. Mm-hmm. There's power there, so you can just plug in your elevator electrical and put a few doors in. Instead of paying 60, 80 grand, you're paying maybe up to 20, 15, 20,000 to put an elevator in your house. And that's because you were thinking about it in advance. At the beginning stage. So what are some of the other areas that we need to pay attention to? Because for independent living, we have to be able to uh, use the washroom uh, in so, a variety of different ways. So in my, in my world, I spend a lot of time in washrooms uh, because it's the most common place where people experience falls and injury. So there's a way of prepping your shower area or bathtub, whatever you prefer, so that there would be the capability of converting it into a roll-in shower relatively inexpensively. So that's in the initial build. You build mm-hmm. it into the infrastructure. You want a tub, you put the tub in. There comes a time when you don't want a tub anymore. You pull it out, you do a little grouting, a little bit of tiling, and you have your shower because the drains are already there. You've already offset the shower controls closer to the outside of the shower so you don't have to reach in, get sprayed by cold water, or, or fall in like a lot a lot mm-hmm. of people do when they're reaching, right, right tripping on the wow, edge of the tub. I never would have even thought about the, that, that aspect of where do you put the controls. But, of course, who wants to go in, in there, turn on the cold water, and then wait for it to warm up? Or get wet yeah. on cold water. And another feature we do is we just flip the controls to the other side of the, sh- the tub area. So generally, they're on the outside wall, close to the toilet. We recommend you put it on the other side so you're not tripping over the toilet and squeezing yourself into small areas. Huh. It's practical design. Practical design. Yeah. Okay, well, then there's the toilet seat. You know, I talked about hip flexors before. Yes. You need you need those to get up and down from the toilet seat. Um, how do you, uh, I guess, future-proof against the need for some kind of device that's going to help you sit down and get back up? Because they exist. They're, they but do. They, they need to be plugged in. That's right. So there's... Two main features that I would look at um, in the to- toilet area, and that would be some v- pretty robust backing around the whole toilet. Mm-hmm. So if you do want to bolt on grab bars, you don't have to open up the wall. You just bolt it on. You, and the nice thing about Safer Home Standards, you know where these backing are because we've already inspected it prior to drywall stage. So Safer Home Standard is a, is a certification inspection process. So we register the site and we inspect it to make sure objectively all these components are in there right and then the other thing would of course peel put an electrical outlet um, right beside the toilet before you uh mud in the wall before you drywall exactly as you're talking i'm also thinking that if you're in a chair you're going to want to make sure that there's an appropriate amount of space between uh, the counter and the toilet so that you can position yourself appropriately to move over yeah so now you start thinking about who's going to use the place yeah and you also start thinking about what's the best method to maximize the best, most possibilities. So perhaps you reconfigure the washroom so the toilet is sitting with space on both sides, Mm -hmm. 
And if you want to put a grab bar and they now have fold down grab bars, you bolt on the wall, you're ready to go because the backing's in there already. Uh, right. So because you thought about it in advance. Yes. Now, a lot of buildings, a lot of houses have more than one washroom. So if you don't want to do that, then you make sure that you have it configured in such a way that one washroom has transfer from one side and the other washroom has transfer from the other side. Right. So if by chance you may end up having a stroke where you're, you're only using one, one side of your body to move, then you can choose one or the other washrooms because they, you can transfer from either side. Okay, the kitchen. That's the other area. Right. Um, you know, a lot of accessible, especially if it's accessible to somebody in a wheelchair, uh, in, in my mind's eye, I think, oh, yeah, well, the countertops are lower so that somebody can reach in and whatnot. Well, then it says, okay, well, this is a house that's been built with that in mind. It's not the same as having it uh, for general market. And and goes to the point uh, that you're saying, well, I don't necessarily need to have it at this place now, but if I've got lifespan thinking, how then do I design a kitchen so that it's going to be able to meet my needs through different stages in my life? So you have to think a little bit differently instead of going with what's always been done, which would be higher counters because people are taller. Yeah. Um, you can split the difference so that you just build it a little bit in between. Mm -hmm. So and when you use Imperial, you're around a 34 inch instead of 36 or 32 even at the top height. Um, the other option, of course, is if you're going to have an island, make sure you have two levels right, with knee space underneath them. So if you end up using a mobility aid like a wheelchair, you can actually wheel under it and work under that space. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, when you're building cabinets, uh, make sure that you build the cabinet under the sink last. So if you want to pull it out, it's easy to pull out. Make sure there's no kick plate under it. So that, and, and nowadays you can buy cabinet doors that you can just fold and slide into the space. There's no kick plate. In essence, you have knee, knee space under the sink automatically. And there's more modern things. There are now um, uh, cabinets that you can actually either electronically or manually pull down from the wall and bring down to your eye mm -hmm. level. All right. So... A lot of technology, there's a lot of um, buy-in because um, people realize that there's a market because there, we have a lot of older adults and they don't want to move. They want to stay in their neighborhood because they've developed relationships. They have friends there and we can build so they don't have to move. Which is good for the individual and it's good for the community as well. Of course. So I want to ask you a question though because when it comes to getting permitting to do some of this work, you're now starting to change some of that design. Does that slow down the development uh, process? Uh, or are there other, you know, challenges that need to be taken into consideration that you need to think about to navigate your way through those so that you're not holding up construction? Yeah, and one of the things that I don't like to do is introduce ideas that will slow down the permitting process. Right. I understand developers, builders are already paying a lot of money while they wait. Right. So my idea, um, and it's not only my idea, is to approach cities and, and municipalities and have them provide an incentive to developers to build a safer home standard to safer home standards so that um, you can fast track it because you know what's going to be there. So some developer comes in and says, I'm going to build 20 units. I'm going to build them safer design and cities say, OK, stamp it you're good to go because we know what's going to be there. Mm -hmm. So I believe that we can fast track development if we upfront make cities aware this is what's going to appear 
And, there, and why we're confident is because we have an inspection process built in mm -hmm. where we can guarantee if you see that sticker on your door, all these elements are there. It's not a subjective standard. It's objective. So I have kind of introduced this idea to some people, and they kind of almost give me a little roll of the eyeballs like, yeah, right, okay. Uh, that's going overboard, like uh, doing some of these things. And I don't have an answer for them. But how, when somebody is trying to start to think from a dollars and cents perspective, they're going, well, that's going to cost more money. What's the answer to that question? Well, first of all, I believe the upcharge is incidental. Uh, I know everybody likes to make money. Um, I believe from what we've seen and studied, um, the upcharge to actually build a safer standard home is for a standard home is a thousand to two thousand dollars. That's it. Because all you do is make the hallways wider, you make the doors wider, right? So instead of paying two three thousand dollars to make the door wider later, an extra an extra two inches on a door um, when you buy it and originally install it may cost you an extra twenty bucks per door mm. at most. Right. So so the key of course is to always build it in at the beginning, right? Same yeah. as uh, same as your level thresholds. To do that later is costing you thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. If you want an automatic door opener, when you build the house, you wire it and you put an electrical outlet right at the inside top of the entry door. And if you don't want it to look like an outlet, you just cover it over with a plate painted the color of the wall. And when you need an automatic door opener, you bolt it on the wall, you plug it in, and you have an automatic door opener. All right. So instead of ten grand, you are paying twenty five hundred. In the long run, especially as you pointed out that, uh, what do you call me, a tab? Yeah. Um, as tabs like me start to age, we're going to start looking for houses that have these features. Does this then become a, um, a feature that can help sell the house? Well, we believe that it actually is, is a very good feature that people are going to start looking for. So we're, we're in the process of trying to get people to understand that they need to look for a safer home. So how do I identify that something actually meets that standard? They will have a, a um, plaque on the house, on the, preferably on the door or the, on the window. But who is uh, ensuring that that plaque means something? Uh, we are. Who's we? Um, <laughs> Don't just say we. <laughs> so it would be the Safer Home Standard uh, Corporation and the Safer Home Standard or Safer Home Society. So we, our inspectors are... Um, uh, home inspectors are certified by the Safer Home Standards, and um, the ones that we are using now are actually ASTTBC um, inspectors, so they have a certification. Um, we're very intent on making sure that it's seamless, transparent, and um, because it's an inspection process, we can go back and look at the documentation and somebody signed off it and said, yes, we've seen this and we've made sure that these elements are there. And they have to be before they actually get their certification. So somebody can register a complex and if they don't have all 15 points of safer home standards, then they don't get their certificate. And we're very keen on making sure that this is um, the way we do it so that yeah. um, people can trust the label and trust the trade, all right? It's very important. Clearly haven't covered everything, but we've given people enough of an idea of what is possible and where resources are available. Where would you suggest that people go to to, to find out more information? Give me a website. Give me a phone number. 
saferhomesociety.com. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's where you're going to find the information you need. And uh, we are just busy building the registry where you'll be able to go to the registry and you can see all the homes that are already certified. There's about 1,400 of them certified in BC. And um, we're about to really um, push this a little bit and, and accentuate the idea because we understand that this is good timing. Yeah. Um, so uh, it will become transparent. Um, some of the people who are behind us would be uh, BC Housing is one of our sponsors. So they're very keen on what we're up to. And um, ASTTBC, of course, um, they're also one of our sponsors. Mm -hmm. And we're now busy building up our sponsorship and, and our profile so that people are going to hopefully hear a lot about it in the near future. Well, that's fabulous. I, I, I think that uh, the innovative ideas that you're bringing to home design that will benefit all of us, really, as we, as we age, uh, is remarkable. So thank you for coming in and sharing this with us. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> Joining me next is Paul Goche, who spearheaded a pilot program called The Right Fit, which aims to connect homes for those in need of accessible housing with those who can provide it. This includes developers, not-for-profits, or BC Housing. Paul, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You know, we're in the midst of a housing crisis in the entire lower mainland, and uh, probably nowhere more so than when it comes to access to affordable housing. Yeah. I, I know it's difficult to say, okay, here's the solution, but you're working on trying to ensure that people who require accessible housing have access to that. What are the elements uh, or components that you can bring to helping somebody to make sure they have the resources that they need? You know, we, we recently started a uh, new pilot project called the right fit pilot project. And it's uh very much looking at trying to connect housing providers with individuals with disabilities that are looking for accessible units. Um, as you know, one of the challenges, of course, is the fact that um, there's very little available out there for people who are able-bodied. You can only imagine no, I, what it is for I've people told with disabilities. The term is actually a tab. A tab. <laughs> yeah, temporarily able-bodied. Yes, yes. <laughs> and yes. maybe that's something worth keeping in mind. I, I think so. And I think as we start thinking about providing more supply, you know, the reality is we never know when someone's actually going to need an accessible unit. And most people actually want to age in place. And we also know that, you know, all of a sudden your situation changes. And all of a sudden you have to start looking at moving out of your home that mm -hmm. you've built uh, in many cases, or you've been living in for a long time. Mm -hmm. And that's something uh, that we look at and try to think forward with in regards to looking at solutions. And again, one of the major solutions is what, what is out there mm -hmm. and what is available, you know, and we're aware that, um, you know, through BC Housing, for example, um, you know, there's only 35 or 40 units um, that have become a, available within a year you know that's it 35 to 40 units a year in, in the lower mainland in in the vancouver coastal fraser health area uh and that was the of course through bc housing's connections so would um, these be new units or are they ones that become av uh, become available become available through their registry mm -hmm. um you know affordable housing society let us know that they have 3700 social housing units uh, only two accessible units had come available all year that was accessible. 
So, you know, it, it's pretty dire in regards to what's available out there. Mm -hmm. um, so when we started the Right Fit Pilot Project and we were looking to connect people, um, we thought uh, that we would be able to tap into those units that would be available and make the connections. We're two years into our project. Um, we've made about 12 actual connections uh, between housing providers and individuals with disabilities who need it. Um, which actually in this particular time is actually really good. Uh, we were hoping to be further along, of course, mm -hmm. but there's just that much out there at the moment. So you know. 12 people you've been able to help place. Yes. Um, you, now, what's great about it is that they were placed in a situation where they actually were able to benefit from the full accessible components. Um, as you may know, some people may need a roll-in shower to be able to shower. Mm -hmm. um, wider doors, um, you know, maybe wider a kitchen. Wider hallways and so on, yeah. Exactly. Sometimes it's a kitchen in regards to making sure that they could actually do their own cooking and stuff in an accessible kitchen. So, you know, to be able to make sure that somebody who could fully benefit those accessibility features, our organization through this pilot project, which by the way is led by the um, Disability Alliance BC mm -hmm. and my organization's the Individualized Funding Resource Center Society. And so, and, and we've had people, um, what's really great is that we've got great partners at the table, BC Housing's at the table with us, Fraser Health Authority is with us, uh, Vancouver Coastal Health, uh, the Ministry of Social Development is with us as well. Mm -hmm. uh, because there's so many components about moving into an accessible unit that it's not just a matter of finding one that's affordable, which is a battle in itself. Yes. Finding one that is accessible that my electric wheelchair, for example, could get into uh, is another part of the battle. Um, but even just around equipment and devices, you know, uh, for me to be able to move into an accessible unit or somebody with a physical disability, they may need things like, um, like a shower chair. They may need a, um, a ceiling track lift, be able to transfer you from your wheelchair directly onto your bed. And those people that receive income assistance um, may have access to some funding to get some of those equipments, but it can take a long time to get that equipment in play and funded. So the Ministry of Social Development has been working with us um, at the table, and we've come up with a fast track system to pilot during this process so that somebody could actually get that equipment faster. So how does that work? How do you fast track something like that? Because just as you're explaining it, I go, Okay, that's complicated. You've got a whole bunch of pieces that have to align to make that happen. Absolutely. And, you know, what, and, and getting the professionals involved to assist. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so we've come up with a, a system where the occupational therapist um, can come in, do the assessment fairly quickly. And a lot of the paperwork and stuff gets kind of put uh, in play, but, you know, a little bit more behind the scenes. So that if an OT recommends this piece of equipment, it can be looked at moving forward much quicker. Mm -hmm. um, so being able to communicate directly with uh, the ministry for approval can happen faster. 
and and things can start moving without the final approval, um, which is great because sometimes just ordering the equipment can take a while mm-hmm. to come in because it's not just sitting there and available a lot of times. And, and it's then, not coming from Vancouver; it's coming from somewhere else most of the time. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, so this fast track process, uh, you know, is something that we're looking at um, at actually demonstrating and trying. Um, it's not something that we've uh, fully put into action yet. Uh, everything's now in place to do it. So now we just need to make the right connection between an individual and a, and a, a unit and then try and make that work. The other area, by the way, I should mention is home support as well. Mm-hmm. Home support is another challenge sometimes in regards to connecting, right. you know, making sure you get the right caregivers and stuff involved. And, uh, uh, but having Fraser Health and the Bank for Coastal at the table, we're looking at any systemic issues that might be there and trying to resolve those issues too. What are the long-term benefits to the individual and by extension their families and the community that when we make sure that there is appropriate accessible housing for people who need it? Well, you know, really at the end of the day, when we think about our own lives, you know, where what is home to us, right? Uh, to me, home is a place where I know I can hang my hat I can think about life. I can, you know, start planning my future. It's my safe place. And I think what happens for uh, many people with disabilities that are looking for a place that's not accessible, um, this is a problem for mm-hmm. them. Um, you know, what, what it does for people with disabilities is they can start looking at their future. They can start looking at their jobs get back, you know, perhaps get back into the workforce. There's many people with disabilities that have dealt with an accident. They're now in a wheelchair. They're now trying to find a place to live, get life back on track. Mm-hmm. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. And you, you've got to start by having a, a roof over your head. Right. It's very hard to say, yeah, okay, I'm going to go uh, and develop this routine as far as work is concerned if I don't know where I'm going at the end of the day. Exactly. Exactly. So there is a benefit to everyone. For everyone. And, you know, and the social component, right? Having people with disabilities living in their own places, being able to fully participate in society is the norm and it should be the norm. Uh, Unfortunately, that's the challenge, right? Is that um, we have many people with disabilities that are in, in extended care facilities and they're not able to contribute as much as they would want to be contributing. And is that because they can't get access to uh, uh, housing that is appropriate for them? For many, yes, exactly. They ended up in a care facility because of the fact they had to go somewhere. Right. And then once they end up in a care facility, quite often it's very difficult to get them out of that care facility. You know what? And I tell you, once you're there, it 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 the whole world changes for you, right? I mean, you, even your social circles and stuff change so you said that you were able to place 12 people what's the waiting list like though for people to get in what is the need Hmm. well you know uh on the bc housing registry there's 450 people that are currently looking Mm -hmm. for for accessible units um so you had about a 0.2 percent uh success rate so far yeah so far you know what do we need well we need more accessible affordable housing 
Um, you know, we and need- so who do we look to to create that? I mean, you talk about BC Housing, but can we turn to the private sector as well? Can we look to developers and say, you know, work to ensure that you're including accessible housing units in that development? Absolutely. Um, you know, and I think one of the areas that we're looking at testing, that we're hoping to be testing over the our final year of this project, is looking at rent supplements uh, and uh, the possibility of having the funds available to be able to go out into the market and to be able to rent from, mm-hmm. you know, uh, people that are, have investment properties. Um, you know, people with disabilities, once they end up in an accessible unit, they generally stay there for most of their lives. So they're really good tenants. They're really good tenants. What about going to cities uh, and saying, okay, if we can work with a developer to ensure that they're going to put in one or two units that are going to be truly accessible for people with a wide range of needs, um, will you help speed up that development process? So there's an incentive to the developer. uh, There is a benefit to the community in the sense that housing gets built a little bit quicker. And most importantly, in this case, there's benefit to people who need access to accessible housing. Is that something that you're examining? Um, you know, our particular project isn't working necessarily on that. Yes. Um, but having said that, I, I'm very aware there's many nonprofit organizations out there, uh, organizations like the Vancouver Resource Society, mm-hmm. uh, Community Living Society, a number of other organizations out there that have actually been looking at that as an option and have been successful with it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, working with the builder and, and, and working with the city to to allow for um, extra um, density, for example, mm-hmm. um, so that, you know, units could become uh, more available and provided to these nonprofits as well. Mm-hmm. If there is somebody who uses a wheelchair that is looking for uh, a wheelchair accessible, affordable place, that they should definitely be in touch with us. So we do an intake process where we're able to take down a bit more information about uh, what they're looking for right. and what their situation is. Um, and that helps us build a, a database of individuals that are looking so that when we do get a housing opportunity, we try to make that connection as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So that's good. Yes. You're a facilitator then. We are a facilitator. We have navigators. Um, our navigators end up working with the individual and we'll also work with the housing provider as well to help make sure that, that connection ends up uh, going smoothly. And I guess to the most appropriate uh, person as well. Exactly. So so if you have, you know, if any of your listeners are also, uh, if they have an accessible unit um, and they would like to fill it with somebody with a disability, they should definitely be in touch with us as well because we may be able to help them make sure that they are able to use their uh, unit uh, fully. So if somebody wanted the assistance of your group, how can they get in touch with you? Uh, what's the best way? I will tell you that they should be able to call us at 604-777-7576 and just ask for the Right Fit Pilot Project and uh, they will be able to uh, connect connect you and do an intake process or uh, start the process of helping either side. And what if you prefer to connect by email? What do they write to? Then they would write to Right fit at ifrcsociety.org. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. 
Joining me now is Murray Hamilton, who represents the Vancouver Resource Society. He says there are incentives for developers to include accessible units. Here's the thing. When a development includes accessible housing, the project is frequently uh, given additional space to offer even more housing. Murray, welcome. Thank you. What's the name of your organization and what's your mandate? Our organization is called the Vancouver Resource Society, and our mandate is to provide housing and care to people with disabilities. So where are you at now? How many uh, units or uh, accessible sites do you have we, housing how many people? Well, including our seniors' housing. We probably uh, have housing for over 1,000 people. Um, the, the, the seniors portion has come in recent years. We've been able to acquire um, four buildings, actually, in the last couple of years, um, which is about another 500 doors. But they also need accessible housing when they reach a, a certain stage in their life. They do. Uh, but, I mean, we've bought the building as is. And um, the people we've bought it from, which is generally private ownership, um, They've made those buildings accessible just because they realize, you know, seniors, wheelchairs, um, walkers, that sort of thing. And uh, we're able to actually, it's becoming very interesting for us because we are now actually, be, uh, we're, we're getting known to developers. And we now can partner with a developer that is uh, looking to build a building, you know, mm -hmm. or, or redevelop a site. Mm. And... Um, with us attached as a social housing element, they can, uh, in many cases, get a bump in density from the, from the city. And when that happens, the deal is that we can purchase six or eight units in that building for the cost of construction. And so that way we integrate our people into the community. I mean, we don't want a building with everybody dealing with a disability it's it's like it gets well, uh, segregation segregation right generally when we work with a developer who's starting a new project our our architect comes in to meet with their architect right at the beginning before mm -hmm. any uh, earth is put in the ground and we work with the developer to design our own units mm -hmm. and we also work with their developer the development's uh, uh, architect to make sure the building is accessible. Because there's a benefit that goes on beyond just those people who are in the suites that you're helping to uh, make available to everybody in the building, does it not? Oh, certainly. I but mean, as soon as you make it accessible to somebody with a, with a mobility challenge, everybody wins. Exactly. And it's not only people with a mobility um, issue. It's a woman with a baby and a baby carriage. Right. You know, she she can't go up steps on this thing. She needs Me showing up with camera gear in a cart. Terrific. I'm, yeah. I'm always thankful. Exactly. And you know, Vancouver, I believe, is is right at the top of the most accessible cities in the world. What's your occupancy rate of people who are like going to be the the direct beneficiaries because they do have mobility challenges or whatever else? It, like, how high is your uh, well? And, it, and versus demand, like, are there people who are waiting and can't get spots? You know, there are. Um, our our real goal is to keep people out of institutions because in in a lot of cases, um, that's where they're put. The, right. the people with the 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 care dollars think it's uh, 
more economical to have somebody in an institution because they're all there in the same place. But what they don't consider is the quality of life. I mean, you can't have a relationship. You can't have your family over for Christmas dinner. You're in a ward, basically. I think the work that you're doing is extraordinary. Thanks for explaining it. We'll yes. be right back. And that wraps up today's show. Now, just before I sign off, I want to encourage you to take in a couple of other Vancouver Sun and Vancouver Province podcasts. The first is White Towel, hosted by Paul Chapman. Paul and a series of guest hosts bring you everything you want to and need to know about our beloved Canucks. And for all you news junkies on all things political in Victoria, you'll want to tune in to In the House, hosted by Mike Smith and Rob Shaw. I also want to give a big shout out to our sponsor just one last time. This episode comes to you thanks to the support of Denby by Sandhill. Located in Langley's historic Murrayville neighborhood, Denby's a collection of just 64 premier semi-detached townhome suites, or residences, as they like to call them. Featuring homes of up to 1,100 square feet, patios that let you expand your living outside, modern kitchens, ample parking and storage, and here's the neat thing. It's within walkable distance of a community that lets you live, shop, and play right in your own neighborhood. Please check out denbyliving.com. Thank you for tuning in on Apple Podcasts, thevancouversun.com, and theprovince.com, and on the Vancouver Sun's YouTube channel. And be sure to subscribe because you don't want to miss an episode. As well, I want to acknowledge Arnold Cheng, Greta Gibson, and Derek Hader, without whom this show would not be possible. What a great team I get to work with. I'm Stuart McNish. Thanks for joining us on Housing Matters, the Vancouver Real Estate Show. See you next time. Mm-hmm.